As I mentioned, the Carolinas are being hammered this morning as we speak uh, by the wind and rain from Hurricane Florence. I'll spare showing you pictures. Uh, There are some amazing photos online. In fact, you can go back online and see the, the photographic devastation from many natural disasters. This past week, as this was approaching the coast, it I got to thinking about a couple of things. Uh, one is, when does something qualify as a natural disaster? And how many natural disasters are there, categorically speaking? So I checked with the National Disasters Association. There really is one of these. Some people, apparently, that really love natural disasters decided they'll pay a monthly fee and get a newsletter and form associations around the notions of disaster. So you figure, hey, these people have to be the experts. So I checked. The NDA has a list of 15 natural disasters. They are as follows. Tsunamis, earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanoes, hurricanes, heat and drought, wildfire, cold ice storms, avalanche, snow and hailstorms, landslides, flooding, pestilence and disease, thunderstorms, and global warming. Now, the last two don't seem to be urgent at the moment kind of threats to us like the other disasters seem to be. But the question would be, how many have you ever really been a victim of? How many of these natural disasters have you personally been inside? I was counting for Carolyn and me this past week in the 28 years Uh, that we have been married, and the years previous to that, when we were college students near each other, uh, I I started asking these questions. Now, we all get to count thunderstorms and global warming, so you start with two. All right, I think we've all been there. And if you've been living in California for the past years, you're technically in an official heat and drought condition, so you get a bonus third. So we all start with three, all right? Now, for Carolyn and me, we were both in college in the mid-'80s when we had the northeast snow, ice storm, minus 20 before the wind chill, they canceled classes, it was a disaster. Then we also lived in Washington, D.C. when we were both single and had the blizzard snowstorm of 1989 that took us out for a week. Carolyn was a teacher at the time, as she is now, and was like, I get a whole week off. It was a great thing for teachers, they had to make it up in June, but there you go. We also were in the middle of a hurricane, at least once in Florida, we lived without power for days, lived at a friend's house. We were tent camping with our kids when a tornado ripped the tops off of the trees all around of us. Uh, So uh, we've been in earthquakes, obviously, as many of us here in California have. We've been evacuated from our home because of a wildfire near where we live here in L.A. San Gabriel Valley. If you're counting, that's 9 out of 15 natural disasters. The rioters are batting 600. How are you doing? Now, really, you shouldn't brag about surviving a natural disaster. You perhaps have heard the story of the 53-year-old guy who tied himself to the tree in the middle of a hurricane to prove that at his age he was good enough, uh, he was in good enough shape to withstand the storm winds. And as the comedian Ron White has said about the incident, it is not that the wind is blowing, it is what the wind is blowing. And If you get hit by a Volvo, it really doesn't matter how many sit-ups you did that morning. (laughs) I mean, that is the real raw truth of it. Metaphorically speaking, life is full of these storms. 
We have storms that fill our lives with chaos, emotional stress. The difficulties and challenges of every day sometimes can cause us to feel a sense of panic and fear akin to when we would be in a literal natural disaster. I can tell you that of all of life's difficulties, and there are others that can testify to this too, that nothing feels more threatening than when people are genuinely trying to harm you, perhaps plotting to harm you or destroy your life or take from you your life's possessions. If you've ever been sued by somebody, there's a sense of fear that comes with that. It's, it's, it's really daunting. This morning, my hope is to show from Scripture how we can handle life when people are actually trying to harm us. What is it that makes that possible? And assuming that's the worst that could happen to us or the most anxiety-provoking, if we can come to some sort of closure about how we can handle even the plotting uh, against us, it would seem to bode well for us that we can handle some of the other lesser anxieties that would come our way. I don't know about you, most of the time in my life, um, what gives me anxiety or makes me mad are, are not grand conspiracies to make my life difficult. It's usually the normal course of events that bring challenges beyond my control. And I, unfortunately, am often the one that assigns intent or blame to these things. Um, but for argument's sake, if we assume that people could be plotting against us, you do have to ask the question, is it possible to have peace in the midst of that kind of storm? one that's completely out of your control? The answer is yes. The how is Jesus, and we'll show that this morning. But before we can get into the details, we need to do some background work in John 11. Now, I want to lay out where I'm going because my normal policy of two points and transitions might throw people off today because uh, we're going we're gonna to meander a bit off of what I would normally do. Uh, I, I first want to go through not only responses to the miracle you see in John 11, but also do an assessment, if you will, of why people develop antagonistic or hostile emotions towards Jesus. In John 11, Jesus has performed his penultimate miracle. He's raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And as expected, uh, John records that this miracle did produce converts, but it also produced varied negative responses, which is hard for most of us to understand. If there was a legitimate miracle of this kind, why would anybody be upset about that? And so we're going to look at that first. Three different things. The first response was certainly belief, but then community pessimism. Verses 45 and 46 of John 11 says, many of the Jews therefore who'd come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. We'd like to think that we'd be one of the ones who'd believe, but there is depicted here this notion that there are some in the community who were so worked up about what was happening and the, the discomfort that's a part of their lives as a result of this new religious movement. They went to the religious leaders to pessimistically 
report that Jesus had done something that was producing even more followers for him. And this is how it is for a lot of believers today. They profess faith in Jesus and the community around them, their friends and their family, begin to act cynically toward their faith or act critical of the change in their lifestyle or the change in their new set of friends. This is a common experience. There's belief, but then there's a community kind of pessimism. Uh, There's a second response that we see to the miracle of Jesus here, and that is uh, insecurity and selfish fear. In verses 47 and 48, it says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. You can almost hear yourself whining about what you're going to lose in their voice, can't you? I can. I'm embarrassed to say so. There is a second level of negative response to Jesus that is really us feeling threatened by what his power will do to us personally. The Jewish leaders were certainly concerned about their share of the religious marketplace, that is for sure. Uh, But they were even more concerned about their position and status and safety within the Roman Empire. They had had a kind of an agreed-upon unhealthy relationship with the Romans who ruled their territory and sort of let them be as long as they didn't cause too much trouble. They were worried by all of the trouble that Jesus was creating that the Romans were going to go, you're threatening us and now we're shutting it all down. They had a place in the culture. They were afraid that they were going to lose and people react negatively to Jesus if they fear following him will cut into their social status or somehow marginalize them with the cultural powers that be. There's an insecurity and a selfish fear that makes you think, what am I going to lose in this? And then there's a third response you see in this passage, and that is antagonism and evil plotting. In verses 49 and 50, it says, One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Imagine being talked to like that. You know nothing at all. I will just say on a personal level, that is a conflict resolution strategy that generally does not work. So mark that down for your marriage. It's a freebie. Um, You know nothing at all. Uh, That generally goes over poorly as you'd expect. You don't have to look very far in every generation for the voice of so-called reason. And this would be the one that attempts to make people feel foolish for believing in Jesus or even just believing in God at all. And we've got a bunch of those in our country, Western critics of belief in God that actually try to make you feel stupid. And many Christians fall prey to the notion that these so-called experts are really so much smarter than they are. And I'll say they may be more educated, but smarter is debatable. More importantly, I would say Jesus' critics today are, like they were back in his day, no less sinful than we are, and no more self-aware than any other human being. And like us, they're prone to hiding in darkness so they need not admit their sin and ask forgiveness, and bow before the Creator. And this is generally when people, 
become antagonistic and begin to plot. This is when you can see in some of the cultural so-called heavyweights who dislike Christianity, their active resistance and almost a proselytizing of other people. You can't believe this stuff. This is foolish. And then they go, how can you do that? And they attack people of faith. And this is what you see going on in Jesus' experience. Now, I have to say real quick that this is an, also a part of religious faith where many well-intentioned religious people would like to alter the Christian message to make it less likely to create this kind of dynamic tension. Now, the problem is, aside from the fact that you'd have to start throwing out pieces of the Scripture that Jesus very clearly taught, there is a foolishness associated with making your goal not offending anyone. And I have to say, on a smaller footnote, that some of the people who I have talked to over the years who want to alter the, notion, the nature of Christianity so it would be less offensive to people are some of the most politically vocal offensive people in the world. They don't care that they offend people about political issues that seemingly are secondary to the things of eternity. But somehow or another, they're worried about offending people about the truths about who Jesus is. And i got to tell you, if I'm going to offend somebody... It's going to be about something that I think matters for eternity, and that is whether or not somebody actually has a relationship with God through Christ. There are three things I'd like to consider, because I think if you make not offending anyone the goal of your Christian faith, there are things that you need to think about. One is that Jesus said if they hated him, they'll hate his disciples. He said that. And the nature of what Jesus teaches, secondly, has logical implications. So unless you're just going to change what Jesus says, there are some things that are going to be the byproducts of it, whether people like it or not. And then thirdly, the implications of Jesus' very purpose produces in the Scriptures and in others unbelievably strong reactions. So what I'd like to do, even before we get to the question of the day, which is how can we know peace amidst all the hostility in our lives or all the difficulty or all the chaos of our lives, I'd like to address these three things with some of the scriptures that are associated with them. Jesus said that if they hated him, they'll hate his disciples. John 15, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is... The difficulty, if you say, how am I going to make Christianity or following Jesus or imitating Jesus, how am I going to do that and not irritate people? If Jesus, and let's presume something here, let's presume Jesus is perfect in not only his holy attributes and his behavior, let's safely conclude that his methodology was flawless, that he was always appropriate. There was never anything he said in his approach or his delivery that in and of itself would be responsible for people reacting negatively to him. The benefit of being perfect. Jesus perfectly, lovingly, graciously, truthfully presents his message, and they still hated him. So what's that say for us? The odds that we could fine-tune our message and like free ourselves from ever having anybody get mad at us 
are, are almost non-existent. That's, it's, if it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to us. He said it as much. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 18, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus said, first of all, that if they hated him, they'll hate his disciples. They, he also, the nature of what Jesus teaches has logical implications. Sometimes the irritation with which people respond to Jesus has to do with what his teaching means for their lives. For instance, he told the rich young ruler, you want to follow me, you got to sell everything and give it to the poor. So that guy walked away sad. Uh, he said on the Sermon on the Mount, you have to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 through 28, Jesus makes some statements about the nature of what his life and purpose were about. He took cup, it says, and when he gave them thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. People who are proud don't want to be told that they're sinful and need a Savior. Religious people who think they're doing enough to merit God's favor don't want to hear that they deserve nothing but God's judgment for sin. And that their standing before him is by grace alone. If you're thinking you're a pretty good person, I'm a pretty good, I'm a pretty good Christian. And, and somebody comes to you and tells you, you're really not all that great a Christian. You don't want to hear that. Because you don't think you're standing before God as his grace expressed through your trust in what Christ has done for you. See, the nature of what Jesus teaches, if he says you need forgiveness, it means you're sinful. And it's not just the nature of what Jesus would teach. Some of what it is, is that Jesus is calling people to alter their lives to follow him. In Mark 8, 34, he says, he called the crowd to him with his disciples and said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This isn't just that Jesus demands that he be the Lord of our lives as his followers that makes some resist him. It's his teaching about sin and judgment. All of these things factor in that the nature of what Jesus would teach would have implications that would offend, whether you deliver them wonderfully, perfectly, and graciously. And then thirdly, the implications of Jesus' purpose produce strong reactions. Jesus says this to them in John 8, 58 and 59. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And then again in John 10, 30 and 31, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is as hostile a reaction as you get. We're tired. We're going to grab the weapon at our disposal, which happens to be rocks, and we're going to throw them at you. That's how angry we are about what you just claimed. Jesus, by virtue of claiming to be preexistent to Abraham, by claiming to be one with the Father, is saying that he is God incarnate. And it didn't happen to him just once that his life was threatened. He lived under this threat of death for the three-year ministry he had. Jesus, declaring he was God, declaring he was deity in the flesh, he implied that 
being divine and one with the Father creates a situation where they had to submit to Him. They knew what it meant. If He's God, that meant He was the one who was going to get to direct their lives. They were going to have to submit to Him. Submission to another's authority. This is the kryptonite of the individualist. The person who says, I will not submit to anybody. I am my captain. I am the person who's going to direct my life. Jesus says, come, follow me. If you're going to follow me, you've got to take you up your cross. You have to leave it all behind. I'm going to be the Lord. You're going to be the one who follows. You're going to have to trust me. If you're a rugged individualist, a Western, authority-free person, the implications of Jesus' purpose for coming are going to make you potentially as angry as anybody of Jesus' time. And for those who have cultural power, Jesus is a threat that has to be eliminated. And this is exactly what we see in the reaction of the high priest when Jesus does his miracle. I want to go back to the text here in John 11, four verses, verses 49 through 52, and read these because the role that Caiaphas plays in this is important. Important for our understanding of how we can have peace in the middle of all this. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, it says in verse 49, said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. John mentions Caiaphas twice in verse 45, I mean verse 49 and verse 51 because of the significance of this statement. He said it was better for one person to die than the whole nation to perish. Now, Caiaphas, in the moment, intended that that would be this great wisdom for the council to say, hey, it's better that this guy die than Israel get kicked out of the Roman Empire and we get dissolved altogether. John is pointing out that God's providential sovereignty got involved here and Caiaphas, unbeknownst to himself, prophesied Jesus was going to die. Jesus was going to be an atoning sacrifice, a substitute for the people. And it's even more ironic that it was said by the religious leader who actually ordered the death of Jesus. It seems important to note, too, here in verses 55 and 56 of John 11, it says that it was Passover, many went up beforehand to purify themselves. And immediately it says, and they were looking for Jesus. Now, granted, they didn't know Jesus was going to be sacrificed to purify them from their sins. And John wasn't implying this. But when you couple what they said with Caiaphas' unintended prophecy about one man dying for the whole nation, you can see why Jesus, up to this point, was reluctant to let them arrest him. He had a plan. He avoided being arrested before this Passover because of all of the symbolism associated with being an atoning sacrifice. You can see why Jesus avoided letting the crowds get too much in his corner. You can see again and again Jesus saying, my time has not yet come. Because Jesus knew there was a plan. We see in his declaration that Jesus all along 
was providentially working all things together for his glory and our good. There's a verse of scripture that is often the first verse that many people commit to memory, and I'd, I'd commend it to you. It's Romans 8, 28. It's one of those verses that's good to have in your arsenal on those days when you're feeling like life is chaotic, the storms of life are out of control. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This, friends, is the answer to the question, how do we have peace in the middle of storms, things we can't control? Jesus was able to because he knew he, the Father, the Spirit, they were sovereign over everything. They were in control for their glory, for our good. Jesus see that his, that his time is coming and fast. Six days before the Passover is when this takes place. He retreats to Ephraim. Jesus has peace as people plot against him because he knows the Father's plan would come to pass. He knows that the decrees of God are settled from all eternity. He knows that God's sovereign purposes will prevail. People may have evil plans, but they are playing into God's hands and God's purposes. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, willingly submitted to the Father's eternally designed plan for redemption. In Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father. He did all this because he knew that what people meant for evil, God meant for good. Namely, that Caiaphas, as he said, one man would die so many wouldn't perish. This is one of the great comforts of the cross. Jesus saved you and I, rescued you and I, redeemed the children of God, not by purchasing with his own money, but by allowing people to kill him so his blood would purchase our forgiveness as an atoning sacrifice. It wouldn't have happened if people bent on his destruction hadn't intended to do it. God, somehow, in his sovereign plan, uses the ill intention of other people to bring about good things for his children. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This scenario of God using evil to bring about good is part of Israel's history, foreshadowing Jesus' salvation for the people of Israel. Jacob, who is also called Israel, had 12 sons. His, his 11th son, second to youngest, was named Joseph. His 10 older brothers were jealous of Jacob's affection for Joseph, and so they sold young Joseph into slavery. He did a pretty good job as a servant and was working for a guy named Potiphar and really making things good for this guy, even though he was captive, sold to him. And then in the middle of this job that seemed to be going particularly well, he gets sexually harassed by this guy's wife and then falsely accused of rape or attempted rape. He goes to prison now. So he's spending years in prison under false charges. And in the middle of 
prison, miraculously, God uses him to assist the Pharaoh of Egypt. And after many years of prison, he's, he's let out. And then begins a political ascent in the nation of Egypt, what would see him rise to be the second in command under Pharaoh. It's about this time that his brothers, his family, the nation of Israel, the, the sons of Jacob, they experienced in the land of Canaan a natural disaster, heat, famine, no food. They had to come to Egypt to beg for their lives. And unbeknownst to them, they stood before their younger brother who they sold into slavery all those years ago. And they had to ask him for food. When they realized it was him, they were scared to death. And the scriptures record Joseph's response to them. In Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. God takes what people mean for evil and uses it for good. Think of the ramifications for you and me. Not just those situations that are extreme where you have people that are trying to harm you, but the things that happen every day that may cause you anxiety or make you fear. These are not things that are beyond God's control. These are all part of his orchestrated plan. And not just a plan to test you or make you better and stronger. He's actually bringing about his blessing in your life through these means. Why? I don't know. And if I was God, we'd do it the easy way. But you know what? I'm not. And you should be grateful. I'd be a terrible God. And you would too. God has a plan for our lives, and he's demonstrated in Jesus that he could take the most evil of people's intentions and make them something that's good. You say, there's somebody that's making my life a living hell. I say, no, God's allowing them to do some things, and he's going to use them to bring about great blessing in your life. At least that's the testimony of Scripture. If you're his child, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Is that, is that hard to grasp? Yeah, every day I have to be able to say, Lord, I need to be able to trust you again because I don't naturally trust anybody. And so now I'm going to put my life in your hands and believe that you're good and believe that you're sovereign and that you're not up there wringing your hands going, oh, I was going to bless Chuck, but this human being's now getting in the way. That's not the sovereign God of the universe. He doesn't have any problem moving people around. He's proved it again and again. He proved it in this moment with Christ. The most evil intentions of the human soul torture Jesus to death. And it's the means by which you and I get to have peace with the Father. If that most unbelievably painful experience could take place... Imagine how God wants to provide for you. It reminds me of the second verse I memorized from Romans 8, Romans 8, 32. It's not up on the board, so you're just going to have to trust me. It comes from the scriptures. 
He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, God's in the business of taking bad and turning it into good for his glory and our good. We see this in communion. As we'll study in the weeks ahead, the night before Jesus was betrayed, he sat down knowing that the next day was going to be the day. And he was able to say, I really have eagerly desired to have this meal with you. How can someone have that much peace? Well, Jesus did. Because he knew that ultimately the Father was the one in charge. And that nothing was going to happen to him. Nothing is going to happen to you that wasn't part of the plan to bring about something great for his glory and your good. So let's pray that as our time in communion is spent this morning, we would be refreshed in our belief that that is actually true. Let us pray.